welcome to the second episode of No Real Names. This is an audio deep dive into the centuries-old sex industry, why it continues to thrive, how it's changing, and who we can thank for keeping it alive. Today we're going to talk about two of my favourite historical sex workers, Cheng Yishi and Julia Bullett. One of the few things everyone can agree on with regards to sex work is that it's one of the oldest professions And I think these two ladies do a really great job of encapsulating the variety that exists in why people do the work and what they seek to get out of it, not just today, but for hundreds of years. We're recording in a studio right now, obviously, but if the response to these few episodes is positive, we'll definitely invest in some recording equipment. And I was thinking in the future we could do episodes like this with a guest, so we'd be telling these stories to different people and kind of chatting to them about it along the way and getting a bit of a discussion going. But let me know if this is something you think would make the whole format a little bit more exciting um, and definitely make sure to rate these episodes on your potty apps so we can tell if it's worth kind of spending that dosh on what we'd need to make this podcast a little bit more portable. Before we start, I wanted to talk about the word prostitute. So these days, we in the industry consider it a slur for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is that it implies that the work is less work and more something that we're subjected to. So today we don't use that word. Instead, we say full-service sex worker, which means a sex worker who meets people in person and provides sex services as opposed to more sexual acts like giving a lap dance or erotic massage or any of the other types. Please do pull people up on this when you hear them use it, but today I am going to say prostitute a few times, partly because the types of sex work available to women at the points of history that Cheng Ishi and Julia lived in weren't as distinct as they are now, And they wouldn't have differentiated between things like sugar babies and strippers and all the rest. And also because that's just what they would have been referred to back then and they are referred to in historical documents. But in this day and age, don't use the word please. With that out of the way, let me introduce you to Cheng Yishi, the most successful pirate in history. She gets a cameo in Pirates of the Caribbean, Uh, I haven't seen that particular one, so I can't speak on if they did her justice, but as much as I love those movies, something tells me they're not going to give her the credit she deserves, so let's try and do that now. I also have to apologise for my pronunciation of some of the Chinese names. I did do my research, but I've never said anything in Mandarin before, so no doubt I'll be a bit off. So Cheng Yishi was born Xilxiang Gu in 1775 in Guangzhou, China, and she lived during the Qing Dynasty. She was historically known as Cheng Yi Sao or Cheng Yi Shi, even though this basically means Cheng's wife or Cheng's widow. So it was essentially her husband's name, but since that's what she's referred to through history, I'll stick with that. Not much is known about her early life, but it is known that she grew up in poverty and when she was 13, she became a prostitute to provide for herself and her family. She worked in one of those notorious floating brothels of the Pearl River Delta, also known as flower boats, which were a staple of the trading port for hundreds and hundreds of years. Their business grew and thrived with the trade that grew and thrived around them. At that time, the Pearl River Delta was one of the major trading posts of the world. Um, During the 18th and 19th century, it was absolutely booming, and now it's a megacity and the largest sprawling urban region in the whole world. When Chengxi worked there, these flower boats were more beautiful and more renowned than they'd ever been in the hundreds of years before her employment there. And this historian, Paul A. Van Dyke, whose work is where I got most of the info on the floating brothels that I'll talk about today, he noted that the literature paints these places and the women that worked there as places of debauchery or of excessive indulgence. But this isn't necessarily the case. 
That's not much of a surprise if you've been exposed to the realities of sex work and also watched like any media that depicts the industry. I do find it pretty interesting that there's this pattern still hundreds of years later, this kind of revolving door between inaccurate depictions of the industry that are influenced by some writer or historian's moral panic and then the image they depict just reinforces that as the reality and the cycle never ends. So in the late 1800s, there were about 30 to 40 separate boats in the water near Huangzhou. And in the late 18th century, local artists started producing paintings for exports. And their depictions of the beautiful Pearl River Delta more often than not featured flower boats as a star feature. So it's important to note that Cheng Shi worked on a flower boat that served only elite and powerful Chinese men and not the kind of reckless and drunk foreigners who'd come through the ports from other countries. There are only a few references throughout history to foreigners ever being able to even make it onto this class of floating brothels, and all of them stress that these men weren't ever allowed to actually have sex once they did make it on board. There's one account from 1836 that says, one poor fellow went on board by himself and insisted upon penetrating into the interior. It was ascertained that he had gone in, but he was never heard of afterwards. What became of him was never discovered. So, yeah, they were pretty protective of the girls or at least really protective of the services they were selling. The fact she worked on this class of boat means she probably also had her feet bound in order to make her more appealing to these wealthy men, which really just makes her eventual career all the more admirable. Herself and the other girls were trained to be really dainty and sing, like, sweet songs of war to entertain the men that were on board. And foreigners often refer to them as sing-song girls, which I think is a really interesting way of trying to not acknowledge the main service they provided. An 1850s history of prostitution written by the British William Salinger mentions that he was really taken aback by his visit to China and seeing that Chinese men made a big show of their visits to the floating brothels. They'd gather parties of men for special occasions and on the more elite boats, those parties would be made up of quite literally the most powerful men in the city. So for about 10 to 13 years, she worked in these brothels. And during that time, she schmoozed with those men who, again, were some of the most successful people in the most happening trade port in the world. And she was really clever and observational. So she learned their secrets and their business dealings and their political tactics. So this is why in 1801, she met Cheng Yi while she was at work. And he came from a really long line of notoriously rich and powerful pirates whose bloodline traced all the way back to the mid-1600s. It's said by a lot of sources that he was immediately infatuated with her beauty. And we can't say how true that is because it does sound like the kind of cliche historical marriage story. But it would explain why Cheng Shi, who was a young prostitute born into poverty, was able to convince this immensely powerful man to literally draft a formal contract that granted her 50% ownership and control of everything he owned in exchange for her romantic partnership. Diane Murray, who wrote a great little history of Chengxi, says that a significant issue for Chinese women, especially in the Qing dynasty, even more than dynasties beforehand, was the fact that they had really no avenues for gaining wealth or power unless they were born into it. And the most notable women in Chinese history who ended up wielding power were only really able to because they got married to the right people. But these were all relatively elite or well-connected women already, so the fact that a commoner woman was able to negotiate herself into a marriage that benefited her so greatly 
and that eventually afforded her power that spanned like the entire South China coast and gave her influence over the official government and institutions that actively barred women from any degree of participation is especially impressive. It makes sense that one of the most fierce businesswomen to exist, not just in the 1800s, but arguably of all time, would learn her techniques from a decade of hustling the most powerful men to enter the port and find themselves on a flower boat in the pleasure of her company. So Cheng Yishi sealed the deal. Um, they signed the contract and she got half of the share and half of the power of control over what was about 40,000 pirates on like 800 boats at that point in time. One of her first moves was to formally adopt a boy that Cheng Yi had kidnapped and forced into privacy as the legal son of the couple, making him heir to their fortune. And together, the small family started a surprisingly legitimate society of pirates. They divided their fleet into six squadrons and each had a leader that reported back to the Chengs. So they basically implemented what could be considered an organisational hierarchy or even like a system of government to what was a very illegitimate enterprise technically. The couple spent six years pirating together and in that time they did typical piratey things like helping to overthrow leaders on land and kidnapping people and amassing riches and boats. But after six years, Cheng Yi passed away. Sources differ in their accounts of what happened. Some say he died in a typhoon, some say he fell overboard and a lot of them also accuse Cheng Yi Shi of being responsible. But what we do know is that Cheng Yishi immediately started manoeuvring her way into her late husband's position of power and by 1809 she was the sole owner and commander of 1,200 ships. She was the top overseer of the most powerful fleet in China and basically the empress of the South China Seas. Cheng Shi was a really clever leader um, as she was a clever worker back in the brothels. She created and strengthened personal relationships with the leaders of each of the six squadrons and she engaged in really skillful diplomacy. She managed to convince these men that their best interest lay not in fighting each other for the position that she wanted, but in allowing her full command and remaining allies with one another under her eye. I've never met a pirate, but the notion of peaceful alliances between these men seems like something you would need a lot of talent to orchestrate. The key to this success, on top of all of her negotiating, was that she appointed her adopted son as the leader of the most powerful of these six squadrons. Since he was indebted to her for the gift she gave him after her marriage in making him heir to their fortune, having him in control of that fleet meant that others would be in really grave danger if they decided to kind of make a grab for power themselves. To really seal the deal, the now 31-year-old Cheng Yishi married her 21-year-old adopted son, which I'm sure was a bit less weird in those days and especially for pirates, but who knows. Once she established her position as the leader through those relationships, she started to kind of formalise them by implementing laws and structures to her society of fleets. Anyone who commanded on their own or disobeyed a superior was immediately decapitated uh, stealing from the villages where ships docked to restock their supplies was an offence punished in the same way. But the most significant laws she implemented were that if any man raped a female captive, they were immediately decapitated, and the pirates could still choose female captives to marry, but once they'd committed to one, any signs of faithfulness to that person were punished by decapitation. <laughs> I like to think that decapitation is very emblematic in this situation, but I think it's less that she's trying to make a statement and more that she just really liked having people's heads chopped off. 
Eventually, she established a treasury and drafted incredibly complex rules for how booty was to be divided up between the fleets. Her enterprise just kept going and eventually it reached a ridiculous 75,000 pirates on 1,500 ships. She became wealthier and eventually found herself needing to set up official tax offices and her own banks on land in all the ports. She was literally running a business empire and was coordinating her happenings more efficiently and way more effectively than any pirate that came before her and honestly better than most male businessmen on land. In her peak, Cheng Yishi accomplished so many feats that are so worth talking about, but we also don't really have the time right now, so definitely read the pieces we link in the show notes. And she did all of this while keeping the government's navy at bay. Eventually, after influencing the outcome of politics and naval battles between Americans and Portuguese and so many other actors on the Chinese seas, Cheng Shi decided she'd had enough of commanding the fleet and she knew she was smart enough to dismantle her operation without giving up like any of the wealth her and her men had accumulated over the years. After many failed negotiations with government officials, um, all of which failed because she would only compromise on her terms, by the way, Eventually, her skills allowed herself and her stepson and all but 400 of her men to walk free with no persecution for their crimes whatsoever. Her and her stepson lover wed and they were made members of the Chinese aristocracy by imperial decree. Cheng Shi lived the rest of her life in Guangzhou where she ran a brothel and she died surrounded by people who loved her at age 69, which is just the cherry on top of the cake if you ask me. Cheng Yixi undoubtedly lived a life of violence and ruthlessness, which we can pretty confidently condemn today. But her legacy lives on as this sort of testament to the ferociousness of not just sex workers, but women throughout history and their age-old ability to manipulate a system that was and still is designed to oppress them and make the absolute most out of their circumstances. And I have an infinite amount of respect for that. Now, Julia Boulette did things very differently from Cheng Yixi. Julia was born in London in 1832 and she moved to New Orleans later in the decade. For a while, she shifted around America working as a prostitute in mining towns until she found herself in Washoe, Nevada in 1863. Four years before that date, there'd been a massive source of silver discovered. It was and still is the largest silver load ever discovered in the US and its discovery attracted thousands of people who set up shop and eventually uh, throughout the years they built what is now known as Virginia City. But back in 1863 there were so many men and so few women in the area because the miners hadn't brought their wives yet and Julia knew it would be a prime place for her to continue her work. Prostitution experienced its own boom period from 1861 to 1865. Uh, Some historians speculate because of the economic depression that saw more women of the house having to work for the first time. Actually, the first written use of the word hooker was in 1845, although it was likely coined way before then. But it was popularised during this time because of General Joseph Hooker, who fought in the Civil War from 1861 to 1865 and because of his particular taste for indulging in sexual services. Nashville, Tennessee had one of the most significant and well-recorded booms. 207 prostitutes were recorded in 1860 and in three years that number had grown to at least 1,500. A lieutenant called George Spaulding had a really big issue with this influx 
and he loaded the women onto a boat and sent them up to Louisville. Of course, they eventually came back to Nashville, uh, lots of them because they weren't even given any bloody food on the boat. And when they got back into town, Lieutenant Spaulding accidentally created the first legal system of prostitution in the US. He made them all register themselves and get licences and have weekly sexual health checks and he did subject them to arrest if they failed to do any of those things. But back in 1863, Julia had just made the very savvy move to go to Virginia City. She rented a cottage and worked as what we would call today a private escort and she competed for business with local brothels. Because there's so little information on sex work during this time and people as significant as Julia tend to become kind of folk legends, stories about her have been embellished a lot over time. Some sources say she owned the most lavish and prosperous brothel in the city and absolutely raked it up, but most trusted sources say this isn't true, and while she did make really good money, she didn't hoard it, as we'll get into soon. What is true is that she quickly became not only a lover, but a trusted and appreciated friend to the miners and the firefighters in the town. One of them described her as a caressed sun mountain with a gentle touch of splendour, which I think is adorable and I wish someone would think of me that way. She was made an honorary member of the fire brigade and even ended up responding to many of the fires. She often worked the brakes on the old hand pumper fire engines and the fire chief is quoted as saying she can man a break as good as she can break a man. Julia treated these workers like her family. Once when several hundred of these men got sick from drinking contaminated water, she organised places for them to have makeshift hospital beds, including in her own home and place of work, and she personally nursed as many of them as she could. She donated vast sums of her earnings to the mines and the fire department to help maintain their equipment and keep their technology up to date, which was really important in a town that was, like, entirely wood. During the Civil War years, she personally both raised funds and donated lots of her own earnings to the Union cause, which was not the side that was fighting to keep slavery, so that's good. In the five years since she arrived, the town had grown into a city. Miners' families came to live with them, Um, and Julia's work obviously faltered, as did her reputation. When before she was adored by basically everyone in the town, even being crowned the 4th of July Parade Queen one year, now the flow of wives saw her kind of lose her footing as far as being the most openly adored women in the town. Her murder in 1867 was very distressing, not just in the manner the murderer chose, which I won't get into because this is not a podcast about dead sex workers, but also to those members of the town who were there to witness all the good things she did for the city. She was really deep in debt when she died as a result of her redistribution of the funds she earned from her work to the betterment of the city and those around her. It's reported the mines and the bars and the mills all closed for the day when they heard the news as a mark of her respect, and they draped the buildings in black cloth for the first time since Abraham Lincoln's assassination, which is pretty cool. On the day of her funeral, the 21st of January, 1867, the procession behind her hearse had thousands and thousands of city folk walking through the snow. They had the firemen up front, which was closest to the casket, and the military band just behind them, and they played a song called The Girl I Left Behind. A year after her death, a French man was hanged for her murder, but it's really likely he wasn't responsible and was only punished because the city was so desperate to get revenge and feel some closure over the unjust loss of a woman they all loved. 4,000 people attended the hanging, 
And it was written up in the newspaper by none other than Mark Twain. Julia lives on as an Nevada legend. There are so many bars named after her in Virginia City and so many others have hung portraits of her in commemoration. The Virginia City chapter of the men's historical group E. Clampus Vitus is named the Julia Bullet chapter. I'm not sure if this is an insult or a compliment to her legacy that a male-only organisation that's dedicated to preserving the history of the American West would pay tribute to such a phenomenal woman in their name, but I guess you can decide where you land on that one yourself. I hate the hooker with a heart of gold trope as much as the next sex worker, but Julia Bullett was a hooker and she did have a heart of gold and I want to respect her legacy by noting that. She stands as a reminder that sex workers aren't inherently immoral or self-centred or greedy as they're made out to be all too often today. And she's an icon for those of us who dedicate ourselves to giving back to the people and community we love and who are working to make the world a better place and are still vilified and actively endangered for the work we've chosen that enables us to do that. So Julia Bullett and Cheng Yishi, two very different women who accomplished very different things, but their commonality is in their roots in sex work and in their utilisation of their experiences in the industry to maximise their achievements and contributions. If you listen to the last podcast, we talked about the intersection between sex work and feminism and we covered different branches of feminism and spoke about what those feminists tend to believe and how that would generally influence their attitudes towards the industry. Those concepts are really contemporary, like they were really only conceived of or at least labelled in the last few decades. So it is really hard to say exactly what type of feminism these ladies would identify with or if they even would at all if they're alive today. But there are aspects of their lives and the way that they use sex work that might give us some hints. I'm not making any founded claims here whatsoever. Um, Obviously, as well, the causes of inequality were very different back then than they are today. But I think it's a really nice way to contextualise what we talked about on the last ep and kind of bring home the point that there are so many different types of feminists and so many different types of sex workers and it's just not helpful at all to have a narrow understanding of who these people are and how they operate. So Cheng Yishi, she amassed riches, she owned valuable property, she organised her fleet into a capitalist subsystem of sorts And she did all those things to help her kind of gain a standing that was far easier afforded to men back then. Obviously, men had legal rights and women didn't. So she navigated that system very capitalistically to give herself and other women more rights and more power than they had before. In this way, I think her approach is pretty similar to that of liberal feminism. She leaned into the capitalistic system she was born into and she gained economic power and she gained reputational power and respect as well. Julia Bullett did things similarly, but with a very different intention. Almost all the money she made went into maintaining public goods and into bettering the circumstances of those around her. Both Cheng Yishi and Julia got into sex work to counter their relative economic disadvantage, of course, but Julia believed that true social value came from redistributing her wealth back into the community. It's really hard to draw a parallel to the exact tenets of socialist or Marxist feminism because the stories of her helping people are mostly about her helping men, but it's clear that she felt it was in everyone's best interests, women included, to better the effectiveness of and access to public goods. She assumed she had a responsibility to channel her funds into causes that were based on equality, like her donations to the anti-Confederate side of the Civil War. 
regardless of what kind of feminist you identify as or if you do identify as one at all, I think we we can agree that both women did really outstanding things that are made even more phenomenal by the fact they did these things hundreds of years ago at a time when women were subjected to far more blatant discrimination than they are now. I hope you can see them as kind of feminist crusaders that I believe they are and also are really brilliant representatives of the sex industry, regardless of if you're a part of the sex work community or not. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I hope you learned something. And if you did, please take a minute to rate us on whatever platform you're listening on. We want to get as many people exposed to this pod as possible. And that would really help on that front. Next time, we'll get into the politics and legislation surrounding the sex industry. I'll talk about Sester and Foster. And we'll chat about the accomplishments of Fiona Patton, who's a current member of parliament in the state of Victoria, and also the first former sex worker to be elected into parliament in Australia. She's also obviously a lifelong advocate for the rights of sex workers in the country. Um, I just got her memoir, Sex, Drugs and the Electoral Roll, like two days before recording this episode. And it is absolutely amazing. I had no idea she did half the things she's done. And I can't wait to talk to you guys about her. Big thanks to Shannon Carroll for our logo. You can find her on Instagram at shannon.carroll and to Carolina Gasolina for our music, whose Instagram is carolina underscore gasolina. And of course, to Wrangler Studios, which is where we're recording today. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, uh, the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Thank you guys so much for listening. See you next episode.